You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Okay, Uh, today is uh, May 16th, 2022, and I'm here with Dr. Shruti Rajagopalan, who is my colleague at the Mercatus Center. And before she rejoined us at the Mercatus Center, she was an associate professor of economics at SUNY Purchase in New York City. And she continues to be a fellow at the Classical Liberal Institute at NYU School of Law. Shruti, thanks a lot for coming on here with me. Pete, thanks so much for having me. You forgot to mention the most important part that I was your student and you were my dissertation (laughs) advisor just prior to the events that you mentioned. (laughs) Well, I would never forget that, and I, I greatly appreciate you mentioning that. Um, but you've done so much since then, uh, pretty amazing. Um, and uh, so maybe we'll touch on some of those things uh, with your work. Um, so you have, uh, in fact, become quite a strong voice uh, in the field of political economy of development. And uh, I would like to kind of know how it is that a young scholar who was focused on law and economics. Um, Tell us a little bit about your journey from becoming a a legal mind to now a political economy mind, uh, and in particular political economy with respect to economic development and political developments. Yep. Yeah, uh, and this is a great question. So, you know, prior to coming to George Mason to do my PhD, I was actually enrolled at uh, law school at University of Delhi. And I got my law degree. I used to work at a public interest law firm. So a lot of the questions that came up uh, were legal disputes, the things that sort of interested me when I looked outside the window. But the problem was that law didn't have a very sensible analytical framework that I could anchor myself to or understand. And just before law school, I had gotten my undergraduate degree in economics. And economics has one of the strongest analytical frameworks that, you know, uh, within the social sciences, at least. And it was so clear that the way I used to think about these questions were always, you know, the positive analysis that economics sort of brought to the table. And so while I was at the University of Delhi, I started looking around for people who were studying law and economics. uh, And that is how I discovered the law and economics literature. I I audited some classes at Delhi School of Economics. One of our common uh, friends and colleagues, Parth Shah, was a very important mentor. And he's the one who gave me my first copy of Hayek and Buchanan. And he said, oh, these are the questions you're interested in. You must read these guys. And that's sort of, you know, what introduced me to law and economics and public choice and eventually brought me uh, to George Mason. So, uh, so let me ask you a question about that. That so that's interesting. So you were interested in the questions already, and then you were directed to do readings because those questions. It's not that those readings motivated those questions. So it's the opposite. Yeah. Yes, for me it was absolutely the opposite, and I was always and you know even within the law I was always very interested in you know free speech and you know India my, two. 
my grandfather and his younger brother were journalists in India during the time of the infamous emergency and they had to resign from their newspapers. So there was, I mean, they were all socialists, but there was a very anti-establishment uh-huh. sort of culture within our family yeah. and this, you know, questioning of uh, state coercion and state authority. So a lot of the questions I used to be interested in that actually led me to law school were also based on, oh, why don't we have more free speech in India? Or, you know, why don't we have, you know, a better civil rights or political rights, especially for the poor and the disenfranchised. So that is sort of how I even ended up at law school. It was always the questions that were being discussed around me. Um, And, you know, this is where I think sometimes it's very nice to be exposed to certain uh, literatures or certain thinkers early on, because then the framing of the question, uh, you know, gets influenced by those thinkers. So, you know, when you're looking outside the window in India and there's all kinds of corruption because of, you know, this transition economy, post-socialism, adjusting to removing rationing and removing licensing. And that's the time Parcha gives you free to choose or something like that. Now, suddenly the world comes in sharp focus, right? And it's very difficult to unlearn, you know, the Henry Hazlitt or unsee the Henry Hazlitt economics in one lesson kind of lesson. And that's where it really started. And then, of course, you know, I I started getting back to the law stuff. And that's when Part said, oh, you know, there are these people who work on constitutional rules and orders. And, you know, he handed me these books. And I think my first copy of Calculus of Consent was the Xeroxed copy, because there's only one copy I knew of in in New Delhi, which was with Part Shah. And I think I still have it floating around somewhere marked and highlighted in a Xeroxed copy. So that's how it started. So that's that's uh, interesting. So you, you you started reading Buchanan back when you were still in law school then? Yes. Yeah. Sometime towards the end of undergrad and early part of law school. So I, I wanted to ask you about this because you've become quite the scholar in constitutional political economy. Um, and I wanted to ask you to discuss two things. Your favorite paper that is not about India and your favorite paper that's about India from a constitutional point of view that you've these, written. Oh, these are papers I've written. Oh, yes, so you've yeah. written. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I had answers for papers. Other people. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> we don't want to hear about other people. We want to hear about you. That's why I'm interviewing you. But I, I, I'm thinking of a, of a lot of the things that you were involved in, even going back to the Magna Carta. Or yeah. Any of these things. Actually, yeah. yeah, that would probably be my favorite non-India paper. And uh, so, you know, in 2015, um, It was the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta. And I was having a conversation with Richard Epstein and Mario Rizzo and all all the scholars at Classical Liberal Institute that, you know, there's this great anniversary coming up for the Magna Carta. And the group decided to put together a conference to discuss sort of, you know, the relevance of the Magna Carta and its longevity and so on. And just to sort of, you know, uh, an an intellectual celebration, you know, if you will. And... uh, This was really the first time I read the Magna Carta. So, you know, until that point, we all know the usual, you know, we won't deny justice or delay justice to anyone, you know, those sorts of uh, very, uh, you know, the symbolic ideas. But I really didn't know much about it. And so I just jumped into it headlong and I said, okay, how did this whole document come about? And it's a lovely constitutional exercise, which is actually not a constitutional exercise because it's a bargain between... The, the king and the barons, right? So it's a sort of like the aristocrats are trying to push back and limit the king from his ability to coerce them and expropriate from them. So it's that kind of a bargain, which eventually 
strangely becomes this huge symbol of liberty for the free world. So that was kind of the point of digging into it. But the question I was more interested in was, how did this document survive? Because as you know, a lot of my doctoral work in the Indian constitution was about constitutional amendments. And in the first 60, 70 years, India amended its constitution 70 times. And it was like a ship of Theseus kind of feeling. Is it even the original constitution anymore? So I was like, how can a constitutional document survive 800 years? And that's when I realized that actually it hadn't survived 800 years. Only about three of its clauses had survived 800 years. Mm. And most of the clauses had become obsolete or, you know, repealed and so on. But when I was looking at those amendments, the most interesting thing to me, which was the starting point, was that the procedural clause to enforce the constitution, this was called the security clause, you know, where it, there's, a, there's a council of 25 barons that will form and it'll, they will actually adjudicate or enforce the various clauses of the Magna Carta. That security clause was the first to go. And, you know, these substantive and symbolic ideas of justice have survived 800 years. And we know from the literature in both law and economics and constitutional economics that procedural uh, provisions tend to have greater durability than substantive provisions, which usually lend themselves more to amendment. And I said, this is an interesting puzzle that, you know, that the Magna Carta sort of flips this on the head. And that's how I started digging into it. And what I found was that the reason both for the failure of the original Magna Carta, it actually, it was thrown out within a year. Uh, and the reason for the failure and also for the reason of the later success and longevity was that the security clause was deleted. And, and the biggest problem with the security clause, you know, in short, was it didn't have a polycentric arrangement of checks and balances between the three main interests or four main interests, which was the king, the pope, the barons, and eventually the public right? It was very, very heavily skewed towards the interests of the baron. And in fact, these provisions literally embarrassed the king, right? Uh, I mean, the king would have to come to the barons and not the other way around. So both, you know, in, in, in the procedural aspect and how it was implemented. And the moment this clause went away, it was suddenly in the interest of King Henry, who succeeds John II, to actually bring this back and have a better peaceful bargain between himself and the barons. And also now it's in the interest of all parties to publicize this clause and the rest of the constitution. And then, of course, the rest is history on how, you know, it finds its constitutional legs. Uh, the subtitle of this paper, sorry, uh, just to finish, the subtitle of this paper is Parchment, Guns and Constitutional Order, which is actually a monograph written by Dick Wagner. So while I was digging into like this, you know, procedural, substantive, durability stuff, which is in the law and econ literature, what I found was that the really important ideas came from Dick Wagner and Vincent Ostrom, uh, which is the idea of this compound republic where the structural design of the constitution matters so much more than what is on parchment. Yeah. Right. And so that's sort of that paper. So I wanted to ask you a little follow up on that because... It's it's an interesting point that you started with contrasting the amendments of the Indian Constitution post-independence with this, because one of the things about the history of liberalism is that um, uh, it's it's kind of constantly evolving, but yet at some point the earlier moves were necessary in order to make later moves possible, yeah. and so the evolution that's made possible by, let's say, the levelers movement. Yeah. And it's limited. Like if you just looked at the levelers today, you would be like, oh, 
you know, that's not really that much of an advance of freedom. But if you look at it from where they came from, it was a very important building block, but it, it made possible the next move and then the next move and the next move. Why is that different in India? Why is it that the the amendments actually end up by moving in ways that, you know, cause roadblocks to the development of liberalism rather than the story that you're telling coming from the Magna Carta to today? Um, you know, this is actually the question I have struggled with for the last maybe 15 years uh, in, in different forms. You know, sometimes I've hacked away at small bits of it and particular amendments and sometimes the big arc. And I think the simple answer to the question is that India tried to do something uh, which now we understand was a very strange way to write a constitution. And you will appreciate this. India sort of borrowed very important grand ideas from great foreign, you know, democracies and regimes, right? Uh, and the way the Indian constitution was written was, we like all these different ideals, so we need to incorporate all of them in the constitutional document, right? So we like the idea of free speech because we've just been ruled by this very coercive colonial power, right? We like the idea of checks and balances and, you know, fundamental political rights against the state. Uh, we like the idea of democracy and independent judicial review because look at how well that has worked out in the United States. At the same time, the prevailing view during those years was we like the economic egalitarianism that is being brought forth by the Soviet Union, but we don't want their totalitarianism. We only want the economic egalitarianism. So it ended up being, uh, you know, a, a sort of very interesting patchwork quilt of these different models. And this entire patchwork quilt is really held together by the Fabians because the Fabians are the ones who introduced this idea that you can have a democratic socialist state, right? And this is why Hayek is yeah. dedicating the road to serfdom to the Fabians saying, you know, you, you can't, you can start at that point, but you certainly won't finish at that point because these two different ideas that you have in mind are not very compatible with each other. Right. And this incompatibility between very targeted goals where you're constantly going to have interventions in political economy versus the idea of a scaffolding of rules that have generality, abstraction, checks and balances, constitutional protections, they simply can't work. So when push comes to shove, you have to choose. Right. And you're right. India could have easily gone in the other direction. And, you know, Nehru and all his cabinet could have realized that oh, there's this really big problem. We wanted a version of political liberalism and the economic path we have set ourselves on is simply not compatible with it. Yeah. But at the time, that was not the view. And the view was, oh, you know, we just need to do a little bit better. Uh, you know, I guess courts can't understand the development agenda. They're just narrowly reading constitutional rules. So it always became about the political issue or the agenda of people in certain institutions. And as you know, you know, this was base. This is basically the road to serfdom playbook, right? Mm -hmm. At each point when there is a battle between the scaffolding of liberalism, which is the rules, and the the immediate targeted intervention that the state had in mind, it was the targeted intervention that would win. But at the same time, you cared about liberalism, so you couldn't go all Stalin on them, right? Yeah. So you would amend the constitution to give it some kind of 
political and constitutional legitimacy that actually, you know, the constitution does allow it. And before you know, knew it, India had 105 constitutional amendments. Yeah, I am, uh, as I mentioned to you before we went on air, I'm, I'm heading to New York this week later to discuss Bill Easterly's new book. Uh, it's the title of uh, the tentative title is Saviors uh, and Skeptics. And uh, and what's fascinating is he, he traces the entire development agenda um, all the way back to the, you know, the very beginning of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the justification of why they, you know, why they came, which was basically the saviors were coming to bring civilization to the mm-hmm. to the uncivilized. And the liberal skeptics always said, look, you know, you don't have a right to do this to these people. They have a right of self-determination or whatnot. But it makes a lot of sense when we carry that history forward that when you get to the post-colonial period, there's this reaction against what you previously had. So it made sense that you wouldn't necessarily want to be exactly like Britain, at least on some level. So they, they certainly want democracy because that's part of what they're demanding in their freedom. But, you know, the Fabians, like you said, and the influence in the British, uh, you know, intellectuals was that uh, we want, we have to be socialists in our economics because we're liberals in our politics. Exactly. And that's why Hayek's Road to Serfdom was such a, um, a kind of a, a, a devastating book in a very subtle way, because he's, he's going at the heart of the issue of whether or not democracy is even viable with regard to this. Um, and, uh, you know, it just, it was, it was, people's ears were not ready to listen to that. Yes. Uh, And, you know, even in India, the folklore was, you know, Nehru was this great man and a great liberal and a great constitutionalist and a great Democrat. And it's only Indira Gandhi who went rogue on us. Right. And what I tried to do in my paper, which is actually really just if I if I think about it, it's it's the Hayek Road to Serfdom playbook. Right. Except it's charting out the, the Indian constitutional amendments. And it shows that Indira Gandhi is basically a continuation of the same procedures and the same policy that Nehru put in place. But as your, uh, you know, interventions become more and more totalitarian, you are going to run into more and more trouble with the with the liberal scaffolding of the constitution. And that's that was the breaking point, you know, in India. But you're absolutely right. And, you know, this is also why sometimes I'm quite skeptical of a lot of the comparative constitutions project, especially outside of economics, you know, this idea that property rights everywhere are the same and they don't need to be unbundled or contextualized to that specific political economy. The idea that we can, you know, code property rights zero one, does it exist? Does it not exist? Right. Do we have free speech? Do we not have free speech? Uh, It's become a it, it sort of reduced the constitutional exercise into basic ideas. Uh, but what I realize the more I think about constitutions is that the context in that time and place just matters so much for how all these things which are on parchment get yeah, yeah. interpreted and get, you know, they put to work in the context of that political economy. Yeah. So I actually like the the Ostrom project, you know, the Bloomington project that you are so involved with so much more than the you know, we we have this Bill of Rights and we can just kind of yeah. copy paste that in every constitution. And most constitutions seem to have these similar things. So, you know, we can kind of go with it. And I've become very skeptical of that as as I get older. 
So uh, the next question is somewhat personal, but also uh, I want you to focus on the ideas. So, you know, as an associate professor and developing your research program up at Purchase, um, you know, you, you were quite successful at getting in places like the paper you just were talking about is in the International Review of Law and Economics. You've been in Journal of Legal Studies. You've been in a variety of other journals and you were developing your scholarly career um, in a very positive trajectory. Um, and in, in many ways, you've now become a public intellectual as well. And so you've been successful at that. You're in Wall Street Journal, you're in Bloomberg, things like that. You've now started this you know, major podcast, Ideas on India, you're interviewing people and all these things like that. You know, how do you feel about your various different compartmentalizations of your career? And if you were talking to a young Shruti, you know, how would you explain this, this evolution from a law student to a, a, a constitutional political economy, law and economics scholar to now a broad ranging public intellectual? You know, the answer is actually in the research itself, right? So if we start peeling back layers, you know, I mean, when we do this Econ 101 exercise, we talk about how incentives matter, right? So if you if you change one rule for another rule, you know, the incentives are immediately switched and you can align self-interest with social interest. Or if it's a perverse kind of a rule, then, you know, self-interest and social interest are constantly at loggerheads and you're going to get terrible outcomes. Now, how do we design better better incentives? You need better rules and better institutions, right? So now we we move from the immediate microeconomics partial equilibrium where we draw these graphs and we move into the realm of rules and institutions, which is kind of where I was doing most of my work, you know, in, in law and economics kind of stuff. Right. And when I made that move, you know, uh, again, in economics models, most of them, uh, your rules, especially the, the meta-constitutional rules are given and fixed. Right. And then we're going to tweak around with them, uh, you know, sort of strategies within those meta constitutional rules, which is, you know, again, public choice and constitutional economics. But what I realized, and, you know, this is especially going back to that Journal of Legal Studies paper that you mentioned, is let's say we have a very good set of constitutional rules and we have the American way, right, judicial review that's going to enforce these very important constitutional rules. Uh, what happens when a judiciary enforces and limits this kind of rent-seeking or lobbying perverse exercise? Do people who have rents to gain or political power to gain, do they just stop? <laughs> Not really, right? And this goes back to Dick Wagner's point, you know, again, in, in Parchment um, Guns and Constitutional Order, which is you actually start having this play between what are the rules of the game and what are the constitutional rules. And that's your constitutional amendment process, right? So you start tweaking constitutional rules. And so then I asked myself, where do these constitutional rules come from? And they need to be nested within a certain set of ideas, right? right? And so if I start looking at it, so, you know, first it looks like it's, in, it's the individual and then incentives and then institutions, and then some kind of meta constitution, and then ideas. And each one of these levels is nested within, you know, the previous one. So finally, if the reason that India, you know, ended up on the road to serfdom as opposed to some other way, is that the intellectuals and the liberals lost the battle of ideas, then at some point, we need to make sure that we get back on track 
you know, when it comes to both the production and dissemination of the battle of ideas. So I still write papers. I've actually written more papers per year outside of purchase. And this yeah, is because, yeah. you know, Mercata Center is an incredible privilege of not having that kind of massive teaching load. And, you know, there's just more time to write papers. But to win the battle of ideas, you know, we can think about something like, you know, Hayek's intellectuals and socialism, right? There are various models. That's one kind of model, right? There's there's another kind of model, which is sort of like the Milton Friedman model. Right. You engage with your peers, you engage with your pupils, you engage with the public and you sort of do that consistently and you hack away at it for, you know, God knows how many years and then you get whatever you get. Um, And so some I, I think what I'm looking for is the search for the model which will put all these different bits together so that if someone wants to have a conversation about the immediate, you know, terrible consequences of price controls in wheat, which which is happening right now in India, right? They've, they've stopped all expo- wheat exports because there's a shortage right now. So if you want to talk about that, we should be able to explain that problem and that, you know, partial equilibrium well. But if we want to more seriously talk about how do we not do that or how do we prevent that, we have to be able to talk about the institutional structure. And then we have to be able to persuade people who execute this, you know, or implement this institutional structure, your bureaucrats, your judges, your constitutional framers, your parliamentarians, your public, your public intellectuals, that these ideas are worth fighting for in, in, in the longer in the longer arc, because if we solve the immediate politically urgent expedient matter with a price control, then, you know, 20 years down the line, you're going to have no constitution left or you're not going to have free speech or something else. So I think that's the, the project I'm trying to string together. Uh, so it looks like I'm doing lots of very strange things, but actually I'm not. It, it all fits together in my head. And and often it's more linked than, than not. So um, let's dig a little into that a little bit. So, um, and, and focus on the podcast. Um, so ideas on India, you have a very, uh, you know, what's your selection criteria and everything. I, I would just step back for a second. I thought now I'm an I'm an academic economist. I'm pretty myopic, so I really loved your episode with Lant Pritchard um, because I think it delved really deeply into the field of development economics and everything like that. But maybe you can give people a sense not only of that one but some of the other people that you've chosen in preparation for doing a good podcast and the way you come up with the questions that you ask people and and whatnot. So, you know, this is actually, uh, I, I it's going to sound terrible when I say it, but it's a very indulgent, self-indulgent sort of consumption exercise in the sense that the most fun part of the podcast is prepping for it. So typically what ends up happening is there are people like Lant Pritchett I have read over the years and I've really liked their work. You know, Billy Stilley is another one. I took Billy Stilley's class when I was a fellow at NYU. And that's when I discussed, you know, discovered this entire literature on randomized control trials and, and the problems with it. And that's also when I first encountered Lant's critique, right? And I met Lant when he visited NYU. So so he was someone who was always on my radar. But sometimes it's a new book that I've read. You know, there's a there's a great new book that's coming out on the economics of religion in India, or there's a wonderful new book that's coming out on how its monetary policy is unsustainable. And it's there's this kind of fiscal dominance on India's monetary policy. So I tend to pick up all of these things and I tend to read read quite extensively. And I think here also there's a certain like, you know, historian of thought bug, like, you know, who all my teachers are, right? It's you and Mario and Larry White. And and I mean, like, I was really 
taught by some of the best historians of thought in the business. So there's an immediate inclination, uh, almost a compulsion to start linking it to the broader literature, right? So one way of thinking about it is, you know, you read a piece of work and you link it to the problem that is being solved, like, you know, mosquito nets in India and the problem of malaria. But there's also a way to think about it in the larger uh, sort of arc of development economics and ideas in development economics and so on. And so I I tend to do that sometimes. I mean, I don't think I do it in a contrived way. I think it comes quite naturally to me. So when I'm reading these books, I'll start making my notes. I'll start marking and folding pages. And, you know, that's the sort of prep. Uh, But the reason, I mean, the reason the land Pritchett conversation ended up the way it ended up actually has a lot more to do with the earlier part of our conversation right? A lot of these randomized control trials and these, you know, development experiments, as I like to call them, or like these development engineering tests, right? Uh, They're happening in India right now. India runs hundreds of randomized control trials, right? Um, A lot of Indian governments rely on advice based on these trials. Some of education policy is being changed based on these uh, experiments. And so then the idea is, are these any good, right and 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 are they going to work right so so just starting from scratch like benefit of the doubt this is the gold standard of statistics so to speak this you know this idea of randomization and is this actually going to get us development and once we start unpeeling that we realize that for various reasons it's not right and and you heard the land pritchard episode i think i think he summarizes fairly well all the problems both in terms of method the lack of ambition the narrowness of the question when it comes to randomized control trials. And then I think it's useful to have a larger conversation. And that larger conversation to me is always linked to the sort of, you know, your mainline economics project, right? Which is how do we get to human prosperity and well-being? And for that, Land's prescription, like most others we know, is you need economic growth. And economic growth is not going to come because we tested something very narrowly and we distributed a few more mosquito nets or a few more textbooks or put a camera outside a classroom or something like that. And and so this engineering mindset, which is what people were whispering in Nehru's ear when India implemented socialism, has now come back in a, in different clothing. Right. So it's it's now in the garb of, oh, we're not socialists and we're certainly not engaging in this huge planning exercise. But it's the same engineering mindset where you think we're plumbers. plumbers. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And we're going to push a button here and pull a liver there and like seal the pipe and the leakage. And then, you know, we're going to get. But we kind of know that this simply doesn't lead you to that kind of economic growth. And while it can answer some questions of how government program money should be spent or philanthropic program money can be attributed better or something like that, it's not going to get us what we really want, right? And the how do we get economic growth? I mean, look in the last 100 years, all of it has to do with opening up to free trade and creating domestic institutions and infrastructure that will help those countries compete in global free trade. And that's it. I mean, it sounds simple, but that's really it. So, Shruti, let me ask you a tough question, though, which is, or at least I think it's a tough question, which is um, how do we who believe that you need to have certain rules about opening that up avoid becoming our own version of plumbers? So viewing that the institutions are now like a technology that we can just like plop anywhere we want. How do we, yeah. how do we resist that urge 
This is a great question. I mean, and you know, I have, I think one of my favorite papers, and this is with Alex Tabarrok, and somehow it is not, it's it's read a lot by people I know in India, but it's not cited very much or, you know, academics don't care too much about it. It's called premature imitation uh, in the world of, you know, limited state capacity in India. And this idea that we can just, you know, take maternity leave, which is a great idea in Denmark and Sweden and Norway, and we can implement it in India, which has one of the lowest female labor force participation rates and think that it's going to work, right? Or any of your hundreds of great ideas, right? All these, oh, this looks lovely. You know, a school should have so many windows and so many playgrounds. And now we should, every school should look like that. So in India, with its very weak state capacity, we're going to say that this is what a school should look like, right? Um, So I would actually say that the first thing we need to do is not have this kind of imitation, You know, Uh, so even if we believe that, yes, we need education and education in Denmark is wonderful. I think a lot of effort needs to go in to contextualize it to whichever political economy one is applying it to. And here I think the playbook to follow is really Eleanor Ostrom. You know, I don't know anyone who has done this better, uh, more rigorously and sort of more relentlessly than her. Right. This idea, I mean, if you talk to economists, they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, there's a commons problem and every commons looks like every other commons. Right. So there's a temptation to write a cute little game theory model and just explain it away and say, oh, if only we could solve this in this particular way. But what she has done is she actually shows how each of these problems prop up in different ways. We can use the common identification mechanism that this is a commons problem, but the way people solve it is highly contextual to their culture, their language, their enforcement capacity, their, you know, interrelationships with each other, whether it's on a kinship basis or whether it's in a neighborhood basis or whether it is a center, whether it's a central or like, you know, a state versus a citizen relationship and so on. And She has shown that over and over and over again. And I think that group has produced about, I don't know, 4,000 case studies or something like that. And I think that's the way to go. Now, the trouble is it's really hard, right? And it's painstaking. And that means that when people want to work in India or people want to work in a particular context in India, because India is a huge subcontinent, you got to roll your sleeves up. you got to go there, talk to people understand the very long arc of history and culture and context in which this was set up and then do your work. So it's not the usual economist gig where we sit in our offices, in our libraries, we just kind of download big data sets. It requires going to the archives, it requires surveys. So I think that's the challenging part. Uh, But the other way of doing it is incorporating more people who come from these countries and integrating better with them in our intellectual exercise, right? So people who are already inclined to study these questions, whether it is, you know, Uyghurs in China or lockdowns in Shanghai or common pool resource problems in India, you know, how do we better integrate them with our intellectual exercise and then try and learn from them how it works in their context? And in a sense, what we lend is this idea of mainline economics, right? What we know has worked for centuries, but what we tweak is the application by working with them. So, you know, I think that's the way forward and that's probably the way to avoid it. Now, I don't claim that I've avoided it completely. For a very long time, I was a big fan of written constitutions and the, you know, American Bill of Rights kind of version. I wish that would be there for everyone in the world in every constitution. I I think I've also learned this by doing that it's very complicated to transplant institutions. 
So um, this week's Economist, have you seen it? It has the, yes. the special briefing on India and the yes. future. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. But I want to first point out that um, you've written papers on COVID and what happened in India. Um, you interviewed someone on ideas on India having to do with the COVID idea. Um, are we past the COVID pandemic in India or are we still, is the scars still there or what's going on? You know, I think, I mean, in terms of scars, it's almost like, you know, how India and Pakistan were partitioned and it's that kind of tragedy, right? Because every family has a, a story of loss, uh, and a completely preventable loss, you know, if you think about it in the modern sense. These are lives that could have been saved had India had better policies and better healthcare infrastructure. And sometimes something as simple as, you know, better traffic rules to allow ambulances to pass quickly and, and you know, so on. Uh, and, you know, no price controls on oxygen. I mean, like really basic stuff. Uh, so in that sense, I think this is the sort of grief that a community and a country takes a long time to recover from. Uh, you know, WHO has given extraordinary numbers, you know, and has attributed about a third of the total global deaths to India. And uh, many people are not sure about the WHO methodology, but it's still about, you know, tenfold more than what the government is declaring. So we don't know the total number, but that doesn't mean Indians don't experience it as their personal loss. So I think that is going to take a very long time to come to terms with. Um, I don't know if we are over the pandemic, to be honest. You know, I mean, whether in India or the United States, it's so, I mean, one part of it is, of course, the uncertainty of how this virus will mutate and what kind of variants will show up. So that that's the one kind of uncertainty. But the other kind is, I honestly don't know if the world has learned very much about not having lockdowns right, about having uh, better policies uh, to test or to scale up its infrastructure. Pretty much everywhere in the world, the solution has been either to shut things down and sort of, you know, substitute it with a huge fiscal push, right, a lot of government spending to make sure that shutting down the economy doesn't kill us sort of thing. Um, or alternatively saying, hey, we don't have the resources to do that. So, you know, uh, let the chips fall where they, where they may. There are very few places in the world that have actually said, oh, we need to pay attention to our healthcare infrastructure, right? Is it really compatible with the modern world? Are our pricing policies compatible? Uh, should we have better kinds of insurance? Should we have more ER rooms? Should we have, you know, vouchers for the poor people? I don't see much effort, you know, in this area, whether in India or in most other parts of the world. So let me put it this way. Should we have another pandemic? I'm not that optimistic, not just about India, but about most of the world. I won't be surprised if there are places in the United States, we just shut down schools again for, and, and we know what a terrible burden that has been on, on the next generation. So I won't be surprised if we repeat these mistakes over and over again. I just, so, um, Johns Hopkins just released data this morning I was listening to. They attribute uh, something around 360,000 deaths are uh, in the U.S. were preventable since the vaccines were widely available. Um, and so it's kind of fascinating. I, I mean, if we step back, it's very sad and tragic, obviously, but if we step back as social scientists, it's kind of fascinating to think about what's going on with expectational resets and everything. And also this issue that you were just talking about, which is that our standard 
method, if you're wealthy enough, was to think that this was like a military barracks. And what you do is the general says, stay in your barrack and you're not allowed to leave. And we're going to provide the resources for you to stay in your barracks, but don't go out anymore. And that's just one way of handling this kind of thing, which is not necessarily the most effective way. It seems very medieval in many ways uh, to think in those terms as opposed to modern. But we've also proven that, you know, the, I mean, obviously the vaccine, uh, you know, innovation and everything was pretty amazing uh, speed and whatnot. But it's still the case that we didn't have, in my opinion, we didn't have enough variation and adaptation and discovery and all these things like that. And so I agree with you that, you know, we're just going back to old, you know, what we're learning is, is doing the same thing that we did in the past over and over again. Yeah. And, and it feels kind of strange and, you know, especially the vaccine thing that you flagged, like even I, I mean, there was this fabulous interactive bit in the New York times over the weekend on the million COVID deaths and, you know, where they were and which ones were preventable. The numbers are very close to the, the Johns Hopkins numbers that you just talked about. And, uh, what is fascinating is also how uh, in different countries, the response to the vaccine was so different, right? So in India, there's virtually no polarization, right? It's the opposite. Everybody wants the vaccine. They want it first. You know, they don't want to wait in line as quickly as possible and, and so on. And there are other parts of the world where, you know, we're literally begging people to get vaccinated and they're like, you know, absolutely not. And some of this, of course, I think is, again, a failure in the battle of ideas, right? We haven't persuaded people. We've just kind of hand-waved and said science, <laughs> right? And this is also the kind of scientism which is set into, you know, the intellectuals. And that's an old tradition, too. Uh, but uh, not really persuading people of exactly what is going on here and what is the purpose of all this and how we need to do this not just for our self-interest, but also as participants, you know, in a particular community. Like what what do the rules of prudence and beneficence and justice tell us to do in this particular situation would be the way we would frame it, right? And I think that was also, you know, I mean, that conversation never happened or if it happened, it just got lost in the noise. So I think that was another part of it. I love the special issue that you edited with Ben that, you know, um, GP Manish, Abhishek Chautagunda and I wrote the paper for. And we were very much trying to get at the point you made about adaptation. So, you know, India is federal. And we looked at how it had the centralized lockdown, but with completely different outcomes for all the states, right? So if you de jure and de facto end up having the same lockdown, then you should have very similar outcomes because the science tells us the virus impacts everyone, right? Uh, and then that's not the case. And then you have to get into, oh, it depends a lot on state capacity and people's willingness to be inside and their local geography and how easy it is to, you know, curtail mobility or not curtail mobility or have mobility but not spread the disease and, you know, so on. And I, I, I agree with you that I think once again, like, you know, more, more experimentation, both in terms of federalism, but also simple things like, you know, different districts in, I mean, schools in different districts should start opening up or, you know, experimenting with ventilation systems or different kinds of education or pedagogical techniques. I, this was such a great time to experiment with those things. And, and it feels like this huge missed opportunity. Yeah. I, I, it's, um, you know, there's so, from, as a social scientist, there's so many fascinating issues which relate to one, 
uh, modeling dynamics when uh, you have the theory absorption problem. That is, is matter can speak. So we try to model these things and then the agents themselves can like have their own volition in dealing with that. That's another question. But also this expectational issue, I think, is huge. Um you know, uh, and especially in the post period, like how is it you get people to reset and this and the signaling? So, you know, as you know, my my background as as an economist was in studying Soviet systems and post communist situations. And there's a great paper written by Danny Roderick, uh, written in the, a long time ago about trade liberalization. And his argument was is that you have to overshoot in order to signal to the people that you're not going to do the business as usual, which is send a false signal and then renege on it. And what I find fascinating about that kind of idea is when we, when an, a central big player, like in the U.S., like the FDA, is somewhat giving us like mixed signals. And what I mean by that is the mixed signals and admitting that they're giving mixed signals when they only give emergency authorization, right? But yet they tell you that your kid has to get a shot. In the history of the U.S., they never did that before. Like they would give authorization, meaning that we, it's fully safe, right? We're ready to go. Give this out. And but they kept on doing the emergency. But yet, yeah, supposedly we're and you know for populations that have previously been exploited by U.S. government experimenting on them or whatever. Of course, they're going to be hesitant, you know. And 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 it, it seems so weird to me that they didn't figure this out because you know just sitting in my office. I'm like, yeah, I kind of know that's, you know, things are going to, I'm, I'm, I'm like, you were talking about India, you know, as soon as vaccines were available, you know, I, I'm, I'm over 55, I'm, I'm overweight, you know, I'm lining up as soon as I, I'm knocking people over, you know, shoot me, you know, wherever you want to shoot me. Like, you know, I want to get the vaccine as fast as possible. Um, but you know, it, 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 it's, I could see why other people were hesitant, you know, and, and we didn't send the right signals and we didn't communicate. And I think that one of the main ones is that, you know, it became so politicized both on on one side and then on the other side that we didn't want to um, admit that science in real time is evolving. And, and, and we're now facing a nimble and entrepreneurial adversary that's constantly trying to mutate and other kinds of things like that. And so how do you address it? And how do you get people to deal with it? And, and, and uh, you know, and I, I just published a paper in the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy, which tries to run through the COVID stuff using Mill's harm principle. And at the end of the day, I basically get to the point you were talking about, which is about polycentricism, you know, and, and how do you get that? Because we need to have these variations which generate different kind of entrepreneurial reactions to things in order for us to be able to maintain a self-governing democracy while wrestling with a really, really hairy externality. Yeah. But, you know, here I also feel that it's a failure on our part as public choice economists. And I mean that in the following sense. Everything that the FDA and like a lot of the things that the sort of, you know, the, the, the greater COVID administration, not just, you know, the Trump or the Biden administration, but the people really in charge of handling the pandemic everywhere, they made this an engineering technocratic exercise, right? They never ended up treating the citizens as people. They treated them as subjects, exactly like the people in the military barracks, right? Now we're telling you to get the vaccine. 
but we're telling you you can't sue us because it's emergency authorization only and then tomorrow we're telling you actually the vaccine's not enough you also need a booster so you know this this idea that that the state and the people governing um you know uh citizens don't need to actually exchange with one another in any meaningful way and they just need to blindly trust them uh i think that's problematic and i think the reason i say we failed as public choice economists is we have not done a great job of permeating you know whether it's the health regulation areas or whether it is any other kind of you know regulatory body and what are their incentives and why do they do this so i think on this once again you know alex was hugely successful because he had done a lot of work looking at fda policy and you know how slow fda policies in the past and so he's able to see with very clear eyes what is going on right now and that this is not a covid thing this is an fda thing and you know there's a fundamental problem whereas most other economists thought this is a covid thing right because you know we've not put in the work to look at these you know what are the incentives of state actors uh in the huge the overwhelming and ever increasing american regulatory state right and the regulatory state has morphed in the last 20 years i mean this is a healthcare system that is post obamacare right it it looks very different from the healthcare system we might have been analyzing in the 1920s or 1940s or something like that so i think that's again you know i mean so in in one sense you know the optimistic way of looking at this is uh this is a growth industry and we should put ourselves and all of our students and all of our colleagues to work and we should really hack away at it yeah um, i mean yes uh, i uh, anyway let me get back to to india a little bit and this economist uh profiling this week and ask you this question about uh the uh liberalism in india and the biggest challenges you see for liberalism in general and liberalism with respect to india and how you're trying to tackle it Uh so I know that you have some special projects that you're involved in that tackle some of these things yeah You know so I mean there are there are two aspects to liberalism in India right I mean one is just the the economic liberalism uh project which started in 1991 when India started moving away from you know that terrible kind of you know socialist uh, command and control policies and start embracing global trade and so on The second part of the liberalism project is this political civil liberalism, right? And uh the the feeling when Prime Minister Modi was, you know, running up for his first term election in 2014 was, you know, he's not going to be so great on the political and civil side of liberalism, but he's going to be great for economic liberalism because he's all about free markets and he's right-wing and so on and so forth. But you and I know from reading Hayek that you know economic freedom and political freedom uh they are very tightly entangled and they're basically two sides of the same coin and you can't have one without the other uh and if you try to go for you know political and civil liberalism like nehru and indira gandhi did but without economic liberalism you're going to put tariffs on newspaper you know and and printing machinery and and so on and so forth and and you're going to curb liberalism that way uh whereas if you try and 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 only try for the economic freedom without the political liberalism and you you know violate due process and and rule of law and court procedure and so on then you're going to create lots of regime uncertainty and people are not going to invest and your businesses are not going to do better so 
these are two things that need that are so tightly entangled that you can't separate them and i think that was the big failure of both the the indian intellectual class the political class and so on and thinking that you can always get one without the other and you know last time we chose wrong we chose nehru who had socialism with some free speech thrown in and this time we're going to do the opposite so in that sense the 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 way india has conceptualized its liberal project is a little bit shaky you know it it always looks at these as binaries and not as a joint project now more specifically the big threat to liberalism in india is that all the rules and institutions are leading towards this kind of monocentric highly centralized executive control kind of world and this has a very long history some of it is you know colonial baggage because you know the crown had to rule india with 3 400 officers right and and in the beginning and then eventually with more but this was very much a top down you know small elite executive kind of governing the whole country project and it lent itself very well to war economics you know in the in both the wars and then as india became independent socialism required the same kind of highly centralized executive right so what has happened in india over 70 years is all the institutional and structural checks and balances have eroded its federalism is very weak there is no real fiscal federalism right the checks and balances between the legislature the executive and the judiciary have weakened uh, a lot of constitutional rules which support these checks and balances have weakened as as a result uh so i think the big threat to liberalism is this very monocentric sort of institutional structure which is also very hard to change you know and for that i think people have to just keep trying you know one day at a time hopefully you get opposition parties in different states of india and there's some political pushback against this kind of you know modi's executive central power and so on uh the other part of you know the the non government part of liberalism is uh, a genuine interest in being wealthier and freer not just for one's own group but for everyone and i think on that project india has succeeded in the sense that the 1991 reforms sort of unleashed a certain kind of economic growth that people got used to it and they realized what can happen with economic growth and so even the poorest indians you know think of the economy as a place of opportunity they want to send their children to not the failing government schools but to like budget private schools and teach them english and and make sure they can participate in the sort of you know the tertiary high gains knowledge economies and this is just the feeling among everyone in india so in that sense you know the the liberalism project has succeeded that you know the tiger has had its taste right so people have have experienced economic growth and now it's very difficult to roll that back and say oh actually economic growth doesn't matter you can stay as poor as you want to so so that's the way i conceptualize it the big threat for the economic project and you know we're working on this at the mercator center with the, we've launched something called the 1991 project and this was quite personal to me because i grew up sort of getting the huge gains from the liberalized economy i was about 8 years old when the economy liberalized and and things just exploded so right from having more chocolates and the ability to drink pepsi and things like that to having more opportunities and you know more easily available books and being able to hear rock bands in college to pretty much everything i was interested in that entire time i spent in india was very much motivated and driven by the fact that i was the generation that gained from liberalization but now i realized that two thirds of indians were born after 1991 so india is an incredibly young country 
and they've never seen socialism they've never stood in line they've never experienced rationing you know they've never experienced all the crazy things that we went through as kids and so there is a still a romantic idea of price controls and you know oh there's some foreign interference and wheat prices are going up so we must immediately control prices or you know remove uh, the increased tariffs or something like that and so i think the pushback is we need to educate the next generation of the value of holding on to this kind of economic freedom because that is where the greatest gains are in terms of economic growth and sort of the future for india's prosperity and whether it's climate change which you know the economists focused a lot on whether it is um you know this kind of uh, coercion because of access of lack of access to healthcare during covid right so many of these things are directly linked to people's economic prosperity and so the more prosperous we can make people the better access so even you know i didn't struggle during the pandemic at all because i work in a sector where i can just turn on my laptop and i'm at work right and that's not a luxury most people have and you know even in india when we tell poor kids that you know go online and the classes are on they don't have a laptop at home and if they have a laptop they don't have electricity connection to charge that laptop sometimes and so on so i think that's the 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 thing we need to solve for but it needs to be according to me a community pedagogical project where the elite the students bureaucrats intellectuals you know everyone needs to be involved and form various different kinds of coalitions uh, keeping this general idea that you know we need economic freedom and economic growth in mind alex was telling me that you guys are going to do a public choice outreach in india um is that the first one or is that yeah that would be so i th- so we've got some very interesting partners in india who uh like this idea of bringing some of the public choice you know concepts and ideas to india and uh the current version of the plan is that instead of students you know who can sort of do the online version that alex and the center for public choice have uh maybe we aim this a little bit higher at intellectuals and bureaucrats and and sort of try and get people in a room together you know we can learn from them on what are the everyday sort of you know bottlenecks and regulatory problems and governance problems they struggle with and they can learn from us on you know how public choice can inform some of these questions so it's it's not the one that you and i lecture at where there are these wonderful you know advanced undergraduate and graduate students but it's it's a morphed version of that that will you know increase a kind of discourse and try and build a uh you know future cohorts of people who who understand these concepts better so i have two last questions go okay. for it One of them is just to ask you whether or not you're optimistic or pessimistic about, you know, uh liberalism in in the liberal order in India at the end of the economist or the beginning of the economist profile they basically ask like, you know, where's India going to be 10 years from now? Um and so I guess that's a question I'd like to ask you to think about and uh then I have one follow-up which is more personal. You know, I'm optimistic. um and the reason for that is in india state failure is just so rampant everyone understands it and everyone und- understands that we need to fix this in some way right and we may not agree on how to fix it or we may all be applying a different kind of conceptual lens to it and we need to have a translation book so that we can speak with each other 
But this is, you know, I mean, it's crystal clear to everyone. Even when I was talking to Land Pritchard, you know, he told me he's optimistic about education in India because it has just failed so abysmally that everyone realizes that it needs to be rehauled. So I, I think of the Indian, you know, the lack of state capacity and, and how the Indian state is so coercive and arbitrary while lacking capacity to, you know, provide garbage disposal and water and sewage and electricity that I think that there has to be a sort of, you know, a moment of reckoning and it's happening happened in the past. So in that sense, I'm quite optimistic. And, you know, I also believe in a million small mutinies. You know, V.S. Naipaul had this, this lovely phrase. And so a lot of it, so, you know, here, I want to bring in one more tiny thing that I work on, which is Emergent Ventures, right? And this is Tyler's baby and his, you know, philanthropic uh, project to support moonshots everywhere in the world. But in India, you know, we've personally supported a lot of moonshots where if you can't reform the state, you can try and make it irrelevant. So if the state is not going to solve the externality problem of air pollution and you have millions of babies dying each year because they can't breathe, you can still have entrepreneurs who can look at clean technology and how do we capture carbon from air or how do we upcycle carbon and so on and, and then change in that way. And, you know, that that also makes me very optimistic. I think the fact that I do EV and I and I meet a lot of young people and I meet a lot of entrepreneurs who are just so excited and come up with such different ideas to solve a problem than perhaps you and I, who would immediately go for, okay, this is an externality problem and this is how we know about an externality problem. Okay, so who do we speak with now and persuade them that we've, you know? So they have such a lovely way of going about it that I'm that makes me quite optimistic too. My uh, A few years ago, I was being interviewed um, and it was a Latin American uh, context. And I was asked uh, if someone really cares about poverty, um, you know, what should they what should they do? And I immediately went into my economics professor mode, which is, you know, you teach them economics and, you know, they learn all these things like that. And then I stopped and I said, actually, that's BS. If they really care about poverty, they should think about starting their own business and, you know, hiring the people in the town and, you know, doing those kind of things like that, because that will actually improve the lives of the people that are right there rather than, you know, just another person studying it. I mean, I'm all in favor of people studying it, but, you know, it's really these people that are on the ground and, and uh, you know, doing things, creating nonprofits uh, to help bring poverty alleviation and whatnot. Now, here's the, uh, the question, which is uh, you have so many different irons in the fire and doing on so many different projects from, as you said, you know, the ideas on India to uh, emergent ventures to, you know, these different things. Um, what is, I mean, do you have, and you're doing the, the 1991 project. Um, I mean, do you have any like intellectual projects that are just keeping you up at night at the moment that you can't, you can't wait to work on and, and find the space for. Yeah. So, you know, actually, I mean, there are, there are many that I, I, it, I struggle with it all the time, but usually what keeps me up at night is whatever I'm working on in that moment. So, you know, it'll be something like I was doing last week revisions on a paper on dynamics of interventionism to explain how India went from land reforms to like the most ridiculous agricultural sector where they, you know, subsidize everything from fertilizer to electricity to water. 
And that's again, like, you know, a law and economics project where I cared about the land ceiling and land reform aspect. And now it's exploded into a development project. Right. So so it was very much that. So I was sort of up all night and trying to figure out exactly, you know, as Mises talked about the milk subsidy and how I mapped the whole thing out. So sometimes it's that specific. But I was I started working on a book project on property rights and eminent domain in India uh, just before the pandemic. And I was in India and I was looking at some resources and archives and things. And then the world kind of ended. And this whole time I said, oh, you know, there are these, I have so much free time and my book project is kind of stalled. So let me do this other thing and this other thing. And now all of those projects have, you know, kind of succeeded. And this is also the lovely thing about succeeding, right, on on, on a project that it, it takes a life of its own and, and then you got to keep it going. But I just got back to the book project. I was back in India. I went back to the archives. Everything is open. And so I've just started reworking on that project. So the thing that really keeps me up at night is I want to talk about uh, why property rights are so weak in India and sort of tell that story in the much longer arc. Some of this almost goes back to 1790, which is the Permanent Settlement act between the East India Company and the feudal lords in India and, you know, how they allocate those property rights and and have a revenue scheme. And some of it is as recent as yesterday, you know, in a very Kilo-esque case, there's a big mining company that has taken land from tribals and villagers and how we can connect these dots to explain what's going on now and sort of how to undo that so that we can have better property rights uh, and, you know, protect the little guy from expropriation, which I think is a really valuable project in the Indian subcontinent where people are losing their land to state expropriation almost on a daily basis. So that's the big project. Well, I greatly appreciate you taking the time. I uh, wish you best of luck with that. That actually is probably one of the key issues to getting a lot of these other issues squared away, which is strengthening up those property rights. And congratulations on everything you're doing and wishing you the best. Thank you for having me, Pete. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. This was so much fun. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.